Good evening, everybody. Nice to be here tonight. Um, I'm not used to talking about myself very much, but um, I do have a lovely wife. <laughs> She's really the hero in the story. Uh, the Lord's blessed us with seven children. John's 34, Sarah's 14, and so that's the spread. Uh, we both were raised in uh, St. Catharines, Ontario, near Niagara Falls, saved there and married there. She was my high school sweetheart. And uh, about 16 years ago, the Lord called us to move to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where we've worked with Gospel Folio Press and later Uplook Ministries. And the Lord's given me the opportunity of traveling the world and speaking to people in all different religions and backgrounds about the most important issues in life. And it's been my honor to uh, see time and time again the, the good news of the gospel take effect, to see the eyes open to the truth, and to see the joy that comes to the heart of the person who discovers perhaps for the first time that whosoever means me, and that when the Lord Jesus died on the cross, he was dying to save me. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. So we appreciate the opportunity of being here. It's been a long time since I was here. Uh, came here, I think, uh, I don't know what year it was, but uh, the, the second year we came, I came with my dad, and we shared the conference together. And at that time, my wife was expecting our third child. So it's got to be around uh, 20, 22 years ago, something like that. And uh, I was here the year before that on my own. And so it's a, it's a great honor to be back again and to open the Word of God with you. And this evening, I would like to read a few verses from the Gospel by Luke. That's the third biography in the New Testament. The, the New Testament begins with four biographical accounts of the Lord Jesus. Luke is a medical doctor. He's a scientist. He notices the details. In fact, um, you know, some people think that, uh, well, you know, people back there, they didn't understand how science worked. And so they were quite wowed by Jesus' miracles. Of course, today, uh, we understand these things. And back in those days, they thought, you know, thunder was God walking around upstairs and things like that. And uh, now that science has answered all these questions, uh, we, we're not so gullible as to believe these miracles and things. Well, you know how the Gospel of Luke begins? It begins with a man who obviously believes in miracles. He believes in God. He believes in angels. He meets one. But when the angel tells him that his wife is going to have a baby, he doesn't believe. And the reason he doesn't believe is because he understands how science works and his wife's too old to have a baby. So Dr. Luke is very careful in the way he addresses these issues. And he wants us to understand that, well, yes, actually, they did understand how science worked. And the miracles that they saw, he's, uh, he's very careful in describing to us exactly what happened. And in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, we have a story of contrasts. It's a story that occurs at a dinner table. And so, if I could, I'd like to invite you this evening to come with me. And peek in the window. In those days, of course, they had open courtyards. And uh, 
people were able to come and go. They, it wasn't quite as formal as we have it today. And a certain man we read, a Pharisee, in verse 36, asked the Lord Jesus if he would come to his house and have dinner with him. And you know, the Lord Jesus is a perfect gentleman. And when he's invited, he happily responds. Now, he knew this man. And he probably knew that this man was trying to set a trap for Jesus. He had heard that uh, Jesus was suggesting there's actually a short road home to heaven. And he wanted to check this out. And so he invited him to his house, and they reclined at supper. And we read in verse 37, Behold, in other words, this word behold is a word that we don't use very often, but it comes from an, an ancient word meaning to be held by something. You look at a magnificent piece of scenery, and it, it holds your attention. And so the idea was that as Luke observes the story, as, as he recounts the story, all of a sudden it's like, we'd say, wow. This very austere, dignified, respected, religious man discovers to his horror that a, a streetwalker, perhaps, a woman known to be a sinner in the community, has for some reason made her way into the room where they're eating. Now, they didn't sit at table as we do. They reclined with their feet away from the table. And this woman has come and stood by the feet of Jesus. We read, Behold a woman in the city who was a sinner, that is an obvious sinner. Everybody knew she was a sinner. Everybody thought of her as a sinner. When she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster box of ointment, of myrrh, a very precious ointment or perfume. And she stood at Jesus' feet behind him, weeping. And as she stood there, her hot tears dripped onto the feet of the Lord Jesus. And embarrassed, she took her long hair and she began to wipe his feet. Now, of course, in those days they wore open sandals, they were dusty roads, no paved highways. And so their feet would be dusty as they came in. And normally their feet would be washed, but in this case... Simon wasn't prepared to wash or have Jesus' feet washed. And so Jesus was reclining, no doubt his feet covered with dust, and now the hot scalding tears uh, splash on his feet. And the woman embarrassed reaches down and begins to wipe his feet with her hair. And she kissed his feet. Poor Simon, he can hardly keep his meal down. He, he's seeing this, and it's just so repulsive to him. He can't imagine to have this woman touching him and, and then embarrassingly kissing his feet and, and then anointing Jesus' feet with her perfume. And verse 39 says, When the Pharisee saw, saw this, he spoke within himself. He had a little conversation inside himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this was and he wouldn't 
let her get near him. You know, there are a lot of religions that offer us prophets. Joseph Smith is supposed to be a prophet. Muhammad is supposed to be a prophet. Moses is declared as a prophet. David is a prophet. There are many religions with prophets. But there's only one with a Savior. This woman didn't come to Jesus as a prophet. She didn't come looking for information. She needed forgiveness. And she had come to Jesus because she found in Jesus just what she needed. When Jesus was born, the angel said, Call His name Jesus, which is the contraction of the, of the Hebrew form, Jehovah is salvation. Call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. Now, when we talk about saved, that's a good Bible word. When we talk about saved, we mean saved from something. If someone's in a burning building, they need to be saved from the fire. If they're drowning in a lake, they need to be saved from the water. And the Bible tells us that all of us need to be saved. And we need to be saved from our sins. Simon didn't understand that. And as he saw what this woman was doing, he thought in his heart, if, if this man really were a prophet, he'd be able to figure this out. He'd know what kind of woman this was, and he wouldn't let her touch him. It's rather amusing then, isn't it? In verse 40, we read, And Jesus answering said to Simon, as if to say, Simon, I couldn't help overhearing what you were thinking. Must have been a little disconcerting to Simon. And I dare say it might be a little disconcerting to somebody here tonight to know that, that Jesus knows every thought, every word, every motive, every deed. So when people say, I think I'm a pretty good person, you may not be taking into account the fact that Jesus has a careful record of everything you should have done that you didn't do and everything you shouldn't have done that you did do. And every thought and every motive, he has a record of it all. So you may fool me, but Jesus is the judge. The Bible says that God has delivered all judgment into his hands. And the Bible tells us that someday, if you don't receive his forgiveness, he'll call you to account. And he has books. And those books will be opened. And you will be judged out of the things that are found in that book. Simon says, um, he would have known what kind of woman this is that touches him, for she is a sinner. And so Jesus approaches Simon very tenderly. He could have shut him down, you know. He could have said, uh, Simon, you think this woman's a sinner? Uh, uh, let me pull out a few pages from your life. And begin to recount to Simon. Do you remember that occasion 37 years ago when you were sitting here and you, you thought that thought? You saw a woman walking by. Do you remember that? 
you remember this, Simon? Do you remember that? He could have humiliated Simon, but he didn't do that. You know, the Lord Jesus is the only one who knows how to humble us without humiliating us. And so the Lord Jesus did what he often did. He, he told a story. Let me tell you a little story, Simon. And may I encourage all of God's people to learn how to tell stories. We sometimes think that stories are just for little children. Jesus didn't think so. He thought it was a great way to introduce the truth to people in a way a bit like my grandmother used to give me raspberry jam to get the pill down. It's a good way to help people swallow some rather difficult truths. And so Jesus said, I'd like to tell you a story. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. There's a man who has money, and he lends out the money, and there are two people who borrow money from this creditor, and one borrows 500 pence. Now, a pence in those days uh, was the equivalent of a day's wage. So 500 pence is a couple of, couple of years' income. I don't know what you make in a couple of years, but you figure it out. This person owned that much, and the other owed about 50 pence. In other words, uh, maybe a couple of months' labor. Now, if you, if you have a mortgage, I, I see that um, a certain um, talk show sidekick uh, is uh, appealing to America because he can't make his mortgage payments, and he feels a lot of people are struggling through the same thing. And so he's going public with the fact that he's got about a million and a quarter dollar mortgage and he can't make the payments on it. I, my heart went out in sympathy to the fellow, but <laughs> now if you owed a million, if you have a million and a quarter mortgage on your house and you can't pay it, are you in worse shape than a person who has a hundred thousand dollar mortgage and they can't pay it? I'll tell you, the bank sends you notice. And then they foreclose. They got you. It doesn't matter how much you owe. If you don't have anything with which to pay your debt, it doesn't matter how much, how many zeros are after the one. If if you're in debt and you can't pay it, you're in as dis, different, difficult a situation as anybody else is. And Jesus explains this to the man. And then he says that this man to whom they owed the money... When they had nothing to pay, verse 42, he frankly or freely, with no strings attached, he forgave them both. Now, this is beautiful. You know who the man is? You know who the debtor is that owes the 50 pence? Well, it's Simon, isn't it? Not everybody's a 500 pence sinner. Jesus doesn't, doesn't think that. He doesn't think that all people are equally bad. But all people are equally lost. If we all went out to the Pacific coast and said, let's, let's swim to Hawaii. You know, some of you strong young dudes might make it out a couple of miles. Some of us would bubble down a hundred yards out or less. But nobody would make it to Hawaii. We don't understand how perfect God's standard is. The Bible tells us that his standard of perfection is not Christians, it's not good people. His standard is Jesus Christ himself. Unless you can prove that you're as good as he is, you'll never make it.
You know, some people have the idea that good deeds will outweigh bad deeds. You ever heard that? Well, first of all, that won't work in any court of law. I've never, I've never met a situation like that. If a policeman stops you for speeding and you say, but officer, I just cut my neighbor's grass. He says, what's that got to do with anything? Give me your license, man. Right? You can't trade cutting your neighbor's grass for speeding. It doesn't work that way. Well, somebody says, I'll turn over a new leaf and, and, and I'll do better from now on. Imagine, imagine spending too much on your credit card. In January, you, you call up the credit card company and say, I got a little carried away. But I tell you what, why don't we just let bygones be bygones and we'll start fresh today. And the Bible says God requires that which is past. And you can't just say, well, I'll just start from today. You can't turn over a new leaf. You need a new life. You need someone who can deal with all the sins of the past. Well, somebody says, um, well, I, I think that, you know, if I do religious observances and, you know, pay money to the church, and surely that counts for something, doesn't it? Well, I want to tell you this. Good deeds are a good thing. Good deeds are not a bad thing. Don't get that idea. We think good deeds are a great idea. The problem is that good deeds cannot be given in exchange for bad ones. You shouldn't think that a good deed and a bad deed weigh the same thing any more than you think that, that buckshot and feathers weigh the same thing. I don't know how long the angels were in heaven before they sinned serving God, but I'll tell you, for one sin, God cast them out of heaven. I don't know how long Adam and Eve served God. I know he was there long enough to name all the animals. But for one sin, God cast them out of His presence. One sin's pretty heavy, isn't it? You see, we've ruined God's earth. God said nothing that dirties heaven is ever going to get there. Not one. It all has to be dealt with somehow. And so, Simon, no, you're right. You don't know as much as this woman. It's true. But you're both hopelessly in debt. And there's nothing you can do to pay that debt. How are you going to pay for it? The only alternative, he says, is for the one to whom you owe it to freely forgive you. But Jesus asked Simon a question in verse 42, and he says, Tell me, which of them will love him most? Well, Simon, it doesn't take him long to figure that one out. He says, well, I suppose the one who forgave most, who was forgiven most, he's going to love most. And Jesus says, um, you got the right answer. And then we read in verse 42, he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, now up to this point Jesus has not acknowledged the woman. He said to the woman, he said he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, "Do you see this woman?" <laughs> That's all Simon could see. <laughs> he couldn't get his mind off this woman. "Do you see this woman?" I came into your house, Simon, and you didn't give me any water to wash my feet. 
In other words, water, that was simply as a guest. That was simply a common courtesy. You should do that to anyone coming into your home. Someone came to your home today, you might not wash their feet, but you'd say, before supper, would you like to use the restroom? Here's, here's a fresh towel, you know. It's that sort of a thing. It's a common courtesy. You didn't, you didn't think about that, did you, Simon? But this woman, she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, Simon. Thou gavest me no kiss. That would be a friend, wouldn't it? That would be an expression of affection. But you didn't do that, Simon. But, but now this woman, she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I got here. And Simon, you didn't anoint my head with oil. This woman, she's poured out this precious liquid nard on my feet. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Now watch carefully. You might get the misunderstanding from this verse that Jesus is saying, because she did these things for me, therefore she is forgiven. But that's not the idea at all. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. He said to her, Thy sins are forgiven. When they that sat at dinner with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgives sins also? He said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go into peace. Shalom. What does it mean to be forgiven? You know, there's some people say, well, look, okay, I understand I'm a sinner and all that, but doesn't God forgive? Like, when I get to heaven, won't He forgive me? I say, forgive you of what? You see, in order to be forgiven, you have to acknowledge the damage that you've done. Now, if Dave Dixon walked in here and he said to me, Dave, I forgive you, and I say, for what? He said, for looking at me. So, well, I don't think I have to be forgiven for looking at you. There's nothing sinful about that, is there? No. Forgiveness, by the very necessity of the definition, means that there's been some sin committed that needs to be forgiven. And so we're going to have to be honest with God. If we're going to enter into the good of God's forgiveness, for people to argue with God and say, I don't think I'm all that bad, the way that a person is forgiven is by saying guilty as charged, Your Honor. Jesus says, I'm a sinner. And He says He came to save sinners. I, I want to tell you something. People who argue against the fact that they're sinners are simply disqualifying themselves from all the blessing God has for them. One day Jesus was with a bunch of obvious, obvious sinners and the Pharisees came along and they said, what's he doing with those sinners? Doesn't he know they're sinners? And Jesus said, now if you saw a doctor with a bunch of sick people, what would you say? What's he doing with those sick people? Doesn't he know they're sick? Well, of course he knows they're sick. People who are well don't need a doctor. It's people who are sick. 
And I didn't come to call good people. I came to call sinners to repentance. Years ago, I was on a plane flying out to Winnipeg, Manitoba. And a woman sat down beside me and she began to talk and tell me about herself. And it was all quite interesting, but I was tired and I wanted to sleep. And as she continued talking, I said to her, um, So, have you ever heard about heaven? Oh, yes, she said. I said, are you going to be there someday? She said, I hope so. I said, you hope so? Like, this is forever. you got to get this right. She said, okay, okay, I know I'm going to be in heaven. I said, I'm glad to hear that. How do you know? Well, she said, I, like, I look after my old mother. And, um, and I go to church. I sing in the choir. She had quite a lengthy list. And it was, it was a very impressive list. And I said, well, now, it might interest you to know that I spoke to a group of kids last night, and my subject was, why good people can't go to heaven. She said, you mean why bad people can't? No, I said, that's not what the Bible says. There are no good people in heaven. The only people who get to heaven are sinners saved by grace. People who have been forgiven their sins. Because nobody's good enough. And this is the message of the gospel in this story tonight. That the Lord Jesus is saying, listen, sir, you never seem to have understood. No, you're not as bad as this woman. But you're hopelessly in debt. And you can't pay your own debt. And you need a Savior. You know why there's only one Savior? Well, in order to be a Savior, you have to be verifiably perfect. Otherwise... If you're drowning and you yell to me for help and I say, hey, I'm drowning too, Pat, <laughs> I can't help you. i got my own problems. And so if you're a sinner, you can't die for someone else's sins. You, you have to die for your own sins. The wages of sin is death. You've got to die for your own sins. The only person who could die for someone else would be a person who had no sins that they had to pay for themselves. Now, there's one thing for sure. I tell you, the Lord Jesus claimed to live a sinlessly perfect life. And the great thing is we have hard evidence that it's true. You very, very seldom find someone who will find fault with the Lord Jesus. Because all of the evidence that we have concerning the time when he lived on earth all points to this fact. There was one person who lived without sin. What did his friends say? He did no sin. He knew, he thought, no sin. In him is no sin. That's what his friends said. They saw him best. They saw him in the back room. They saw him when he was relaxed, when no one else saw him. But they said, there's no one like Jesus. The judge at his trial said, I find no fault in him at all. He was desperately looking for something. The executioner at his crucifixion said, Truly, this was a righteous man. Truly, this was the Son of God. He never met anybody like this before. The people who had accused him, when when Pilate asked, What's he done? What wrong has he done? They said, Well, you know, if, if he wasn't guilty, we wouldn't have brought him to you. I see. They said uh, at the cross, He saved others. Can you imagine that? His ex, those, who had, those who had paid false witnesses to accuse him, standing at the cross, they said, 
He saved others. They knew he had. Himself he cannot save. That well, was true. If he was going to save others, he couldn't save himself. One day the demons of hell spoke out. And they said, what do you have to do with us, Holy One of God? And you know, one day God broke a 400-year silence. And to a huge crowd of people, foe and friend, God said, this is my beloved Son. I'm well pleased with Him. Now, whatever these great religious leaders are, everybody knows they're not perfect. What a, what a wonderful coincidence that the only perfect person in history was also willing to be made sin for us. To be accounted as if He were the sinner, as if He were you, and to pay your debt of sin. I tell you, it's the happiest circumstance in the history of the world. That God took His Son, who knew no sin, and made Him to be sin for us, that we who are the sinners could be made the righteousness of God in Him. I was telling some folks a story uh, this afternoon. A friend of mine in North Dakota said that uh, they'd had a little boy come to their kids' club. He was quite a rambunctious fellow. His name was Troy. Eventually, he grew out of the age group and they didn't see him for some years. And then one night, my friend Myron Martinson, his phone rang. It was Troy. Myron, you got to come. My dad's dying and he's going to hell. you got to tell him how to get to heaven. And so Myron went out and got in his pickup truck and went and picked up Troy and went over to the hospital. When he walked into the hospital room, Troy hadn't told him, but his dad was already in a coma. His dad had lived... The last five years under a bridge in Fargo, North Dakota. The room was full of relatives. Myron didn't know what to do, but Troy was tugging on his sleeve. Come on, Myron, you got to tell him. You got to tell him. Myron didn't know whether the man could hear him or not, but standing over the prone figure, he, he very simply began to explain the gospel to, to this poor man, Reuben. Told him how. Although he was a wicked sinner and he deserved the, the fires of hell that, that Jesus had died to save, save him from his sins. When he was finished, he prayed with the family and he left. And a couple of days later, he heard that, that Reuben was still alive. And so he made another trip around to the, the hospital and went up, to the, up the elevator to the room. And as he walked in the room, there was no one else there except Reuben. And he was sitting up in bed with his eyes open. And... And Myron said, hello, Reuben. And Reuben said, well, I, I recognize that voice, but I, I don't remember your face. He said, you know, I heard everything you said the other night when I was in the coma. And he said, I'd like to be saved, but God wouldn't save me now, not after the way I've treated my family, not after the way I've lived. And Myron said, well, it's a bit late for God to back out on the arrangement now. He's had the money in the bank for 2,000 years to pay for your sins, Reuben. If you'll just repent and receive him. And Reuben said, well, if he'll have me, I'll have him. And he cried out to God to save him. Now, they had a little talk and Myron prayed with him and 
and he left. The next day, Myron got a phone call from Reuben's daughter. She said, I guess you left just before I got there. She said, I was going up in the other elevator when you were coming down. And I walked into the room and my father was beaming. And he said, honey, you don't have to worry about me now. My sins are forgiven. I'm going to heaven. He said, please tell the family how sorry I am for the way I treated them. But listen, you know the church we went to? They never told us the truth. Listen to Myron. That's the, that's the true message. And he said, honey, God has forgiven me of all my sins. And I'm on my way to heaven. And with that, he fell back on the pillow dead. It reminds us, Christian, you can never do a good thing too soon because you never know how soon it'll be too late. Well, she said, um, my dad was right. You know, the church we went to, it never did any anything to help us. And I think he'd like you to take the funeral. It's just going to be a pauper's funeral, but, but if you'd be willing to take it, I think my dad would like you to take it. And Myron said, well, I'd be honored to take it, but I'll tell you something. Your dad may have lived like a pauper, but he died the child of a king, and we won't have any pauper's funeral for him. He said, we're real Christians over the chapel, and, and they went and bought a casket and flowers, and, and they put on a meal for the family. Myron said, when I got there, the place was packed with all the homeless people in, in Fargo. They wanted to see their old buddy Reuben leave in style, I guess, and uh, I suppose the free meal had something to do with it. After the, after the gospel was preached and, and Myron was able to tell the story of Reuben and how on the very brink of eternity he had put his trust in Christ. Myron said, I went downstairs and, and the family was in one corner and all these homeless guys over in another corner. And in a third corner, there was an older woman and a younger woman and they were sitting weeping. And he said, I went over to them and I said, is there anything I can do to help? And the older woman said, well, Actually, these are tears of joy, she said. She said, I was, I was Reuben's first wife. And 20 years ago, I put my trust in Christ. And Reuben threw me out on the street. This, this daughter, my daughter, was a little babe in arms at the time. And she said, for the last 20 years, we've been praying for Reuben's salvation. I tell you, heaven's going to have a lot of surprises, isn't it? And the sad thing is that there are many Simons. They're not really, really big sinners compared to other people. But the Bible says those who judge themselves by themselves aren't wise. To compare yourself to some other person and say, well, I'd never do that. Tut, tut, can you imagine people who do those sorts of things? God says, no, but what would you do? You know, the great crime of history is the sin of rejecting the pardon. It's the only sin that God can't forgive. It's the unpardonable sin. The sin of rejecting the pardon. There's nothing God can do to save a person like that. He can save any, anybody from any other sin. But this one sin is even beyond God. As the writer to the Hebrew says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation. You notice it doesn't say reject. The word there is a word that means to run away as out of a leaky vessel, a little pinhole in your gas, can, gas tank. That's all you need, you know. And it just dribbles away. And the opportunities to get saved, they just dribble away. The days dribble away. 
You just put it off another day, another year, another conference. You've heard the message before, but you've got your friends and you've got your fun and you don't want to give that up. And you know that you're a sinner and you know Christ died for you. But somehow, these other things seem more important to you. And the days turn into weeks and the weeks into months and the months into years. And every moment, you're in danger of hellfire. One heartbeat from a lost eternity. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. Do you think that would be the sweetest sentence that anyone ever heard? All the sins that have been committed against the Holy God, each one of which deserves an eternity separated from Him. You know, it cost the Lord Jesus a lot to say that to this woman. The Jews said, as they sat there at dinner, who is this that forgives sins? Who, who does he think he is? On another occasion they said, only God forgives sins. Is that true? Aren't you supposed to forgive? You're supposed to forgive, aren't you? Yeah, in fact, the Bible says if you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. Yeah, you're supposed to forgive. But what does this mean that only God forgives? Well, poor Dave, I'm working him over pretty hard here. But but if I walked up to Dave and I punched him in the nose, gave him a nosebleed, and Brother Greenwood said, that's okay, I forgive you. And Dave says, hey, wait a minute, it wasn't your nose, buddy. You see, Jesus wasn't forgiving sins that had been personally done against him. He was forgiving sins against God. That's what bothered them. On another occasion, we referred to this earlier, four men had brought a lame man and they'd opened up the flat top roof and, a, and had let this man down in front of Jesus. And Jesus knew that he had some hostile observers. And so he said to the man, Your sins are forgiven you. The only occasion in the Bible where the spiritual miracle occurred before the physical miracle. Because Jesus was testing these men. Your sins be forgiven you. And they got upset about that. And so who does he think he is forgiving sins against God? And Jesus said, what's easier? To say your sins be forgiven you or rise, take up your bed and walk. But so you'll believe, I say to the man, go ahead, rise, take up your bed and walk. And the man did. But which is easier? Which is easier, to heal a man or to say your sins be forgiven you? Well, for me, it would be easier to say your sins be forgiven me because nobody would know whether it worked or not. I certainly couldn't say rise, take up your bed and walk. But I tell you this, it was a lot more difficult for the Lord Jesus to say your sins be forgiven you. To say rise, take up your bed and walk, that just cost him his breath. But to say your sins be forgiven you, that would cost him his death. For Jesus to offer you eternal life tonight, to say your sins be forgiven you, he had to go to Calvary for that. He had to bear in his body the judgment of Almighty God 
And so when he offers it to you tonight, I beg you, don't take it lightly. Don't blow him off. Don't treat it as some little thing. Don't say like another man when uh, I'll hear you again on this matter. Maybe some other time we'll think about it. There are more people in hell through procrastination than for any other reason. Nobody plans on going to hell. They just don't prepare to meet God. He said to the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Now what is faith? Well, faith is taking God at His word. Faith is agreeing with God. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When we hear God say, you're a sinner, you don't argue with Him. You, you agree with Him. And when He says that there's only one Savior and His name is Jesus, you agree with Him. History will tell you the same thing. And when he says he'll save you, you take him up on his offer. And you find out that what he said is really true after all. There's never been a person who's come to the Lord Jesus and honestly confessed their sin and received his eternal life that was disappointed. Not one. That's why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It works every time. It works every time. Your faith has saved you. And maybe there's someone here tonight. And like uh, Jamie was mentioning, you, you feel that you've put your trust in Him, but you have no certainty of salvation. Let me explain to you a very important principle in the Bible. I can honestly say that if God gave me eternal life, I could have spoiled it. I could have lost it. God knows me. He knows, he knows what I'm like. I've spoiled everything else. That's what a sinner is. Somebody who spoils things. And so God didn't give me eternal life. What He did was He gave me His Son. And this life is in His Son. That's why the Scripture says, your life, speaking of a believer, your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we appear with Him in glory. I can't lose it because it wasn't given to me. The life is entrusted to the Lord Jesus. He is the source and object of life. I have no life independent of His. That's why Paul said, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live through faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. God wants us not only to be safe, He wants us to be sure. He wants us to understand that this eternal life, God's thought of everything. There's not a weak link in the chain. And the moment I put my trust in Him, He secures my faith, and He guarantees not only that I will make it to heaven someday, He tells me my life has already arrived in heaven. My life is hid with Christ in God. And so I can just rest on God's Word tonight when He says, Whoever comes to Me, I won't cast you out. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Now, there are no verses that say that you have to pray a prayer in order to be saved. 
what the Bible says is you have to see in the Word of God that when Jesus was dying, it was for you He was dying. And you agree with that. In other words, you're saying, when I stand at the cross and I see Him there, my sin was really that bad. That was my death. The death He was dying was my... He didn't deserve to be there. I deserve to be there. And when you see that for the first time and realize He died for me, I deserved that and He took my place. The Son of God, the Eternal One, came into time and went to the cross for little me. Sinful me. I'm not His type. I don't know why He wanted me. But He set His love on me. And He gave Himself for me. And I ought to be like that woman who gets down and kisses His feet and say, Lord Jesus, I have no idea why You want to save me. Why You'd want to pay my debt. But if You want me, I want You. Just like Reuben. And in a moment of time, you pass from death to life. And how do you know it's true? Well, you know it's true because God said so. You just rest where God rests in the finished work of Christ. And God said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your trust on Him. Your your trust for your eternal destiny to say, Lord Jesus, I'm not trusting my works, my thoughts, my efforts, my anything. I'm trusting you alone. And God says, anybody who does that, in that very moment, they pass from death to life. They become a child of God. They have a secure link with heaven. And they become the possessors of the Lord Jesus Himself who moves in and brings with Him a whole new kind of life. And for the life of me, I do not know why anyone would say no or put it off another day. If you'd like to talk about these things, there are many Christians here who count it a privilege to introduce you to the Lord Jesus. But you know what? I think you know off already. You've heard enough tonight, just where you sit, just to be honest with God, and say, I've had enough of this. I don't want to live like this anymore. Live with the consciousness as I go to bed tonight that the wrath of God is hanging over my head. That's what the Bible says. The wrath of God abides hangs over your head if you haven't found refuge in the Lord Jesus. You know, in the old days when the pioneers were laboring out in the, out in the West, one of the most dangerous things was, was to see a forest fire coming. And there's no place to run in the prairies. Uh, horse and buggies couldn't stay ahead of a forest fire. And so what the farmer would do is he'd he'd go out into his own fields and he'd set his own fields on fire. And then he'd take his little family out into the middle of the charred field, cover them with wet blankets, and they'd wait as the firestorm swept across the prairie. And when it came to their charred bit, it would sweep around and it would leave them safe because they were standing where the fire had already been. One day the fire of God fell on the Lord Jesus and consumed all of the judgment, all of the sin, all of the 
wrath fell on, on the Savior that day. And God invites you to come and stand where the fire has been and find a place of protection there. And if you find yourself secure in the Lord Jesus, I tell you this, that the wrath of God has passed over you and never again will you be held to account for your sin. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, has been nailed to His cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come in this beautiful spot on this lovely evening, we look over this audience. We have no idea who's here. And maybe there's some here who've been playing games, pretending they're Christians when they're with the Christians, but living chameleon lives, and they know in their heart they're not saved. Oh God, we pray that the game will stop tonight. And they'll say, Lord Jesus, I want, to, I want to be a real Christian. I want to know my sins forgiven. I want to know for sure that I'm bound for heaven. And I don't want to be a half-hearted, mediocre, hypocritical type. I want to be a real Christian. I want to show by my life that I owe everything to Jesus the way this woman did. Maybe there are some here tonight and and they've thought about it before, but the world just seems to be too attractive. Oh God, we pray that You'll give them the eternal's perspective. Help them to realize that the pleasures of sin are just for a season. And someday it will all be over. We pray that they might repent of this careless attitude towards the work of Christ. That they'll repent of not being grateful for the willingness of the Lord Jesus to die for them. We pray for some here tonight who, who don't have assurance of sins forgiven. They've, they've put their trust in Him, but they, they're not sure where they stand. We pray that they might tonight stand on the Word of God. He that has the Son has life and shall not come into judgment, but is already passed from death to life. We ask these things, Father, and pray that You'll take these halting, humble words and apply them to every heart. We pray that those who are believers here will, will lay hold of this glorious gospel and take it with them to share with others. We give thanks for that lovely man who died on the middle tree. The Son of God loved me and gave Himself for me. We will be eternally grateful. But unitedly, everyone here who loves the Lord Jesus, we unite our hearts and we praise our Redeemer's name and we give thanks for such a Savior and we come to Thee in His lovely name, the Lord Jesus. Amen.